Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Ezra chapter 9, and last Sunday's sermon was titled The Changing of the Guard, and we talked about leadership. We talked about the recycling of leadership. You know, sometimes we, as we age, we get tired, we start to slow down, and somebody else comes up to take our place. So this, you know, this happens in the business world, this happens in ministry, uh, and it happened in Ezra's day. Today, the message title is Dynamic Influence. And I just think that term is a powerful term because influence is really rarely ever static, especially when it comes to spiritual influence. At any given moment in time, we're being influenced towards God, and hopefully we're influencing others towards God, or we're being influenced away from God. Or maybe we're weaker in our faith, or we're having a, a moment of weakness, and someone is you know, getting us to talk about something go somewhere and they just kind of pull us in that moment of time, in that snapshot away from God. Well, it was no different with the children of Israel. The children of Israel had these same problems. Uh, some, like Ezra, were being influenced towards God and wanted to influence others toward the Lord. But many back in Jerusalem were being negatively influenced from their neighbors, from their pagan neighbor, neighbors, trying to pull them away from God. And we're going to see this in six parts. And then we're going to jump in next Sunday is going to be our first sermon of the parables. And next Sunday is key because we're going to learn what the parables are. What was Jesus trying to do or convey in the parables? And what messages can we learn from those parables? So if we can start with verse 1. It says, when these things were done in context, Ezra comes back with a contingent repatriated towards uh, Jerusalem. And he's probably bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. He's a, a ministry leader. He's excited for the things of God. But he hits a brick wall, you know, in the attitude of the people. So it says, when these things were done, the leaders came to me. So some leaders come to Ezra and say, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, people who should know better, other leaders, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is intermingled with the peoples of that land. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So the first out of six is Israel's unfaithfulness. Now, we can't look at this eisegetically. There's exegetical teaching and understanding is eisegetical. And it just comes from Greek prefixes. Eisegesis is reading into the text. And that's where you see a lot of problems in the teachings of Christianity. Why is there so much division in Christianity? Because people want to make the Bible say whatever they want it to say. And you can. You can take a phrase out of a whole book and make it say whatever you want it to say. Now, it's not the truth. But false teachers will do this. So in an eisegetical fashion, we could look at our culture and the problems in 2016. And you talk about immigration, you talk about foreigners, and then read that into the text. 
That's not what's going on here. This has nothing to do with xenophobia. Okay? What happened was that Israel, God wanted them to be a light. Just like today as Christians, God wants us to be a light. He wants us to be a good example to those around us. But what it's, remember, dynamic influence. What the Israelites were doing in many occasions were allowing the, the pagans, the heathen from around them to negatively influencing them. And a lot of the surrounding nations didn't like the worship of true God. So they try to dilute the faith. Right? They try to use either marriage alliances or even sexual seductions. And it gets the Israelites to now worship the false gods. They weaken them spiritually. They dilute them. And now they're open to all kinds of crazy abominations. Now some of the abominations, and it's not pleasant to talk about, is that some of the Canaanites would actually take their babies and sacrifice them in horrible ways to their gods, their false gods, their demons. And the children of Israel started to do some of that, and God was furious about that, and, and rightly so. That's a horrible practice. Um, we saw this with King Solomon, started out really well, started marrying a lot of the pagan women, and they talked him into building their own shrines and altars, and then he started worshiping at those shrines and altars. You see how influence, it's, Satan is very subtle. It's a very slow fade, like the song goes. Starts off small, small, little by little by little before you know it. You're way far away from God. You've been influenced away. So the, so the issue is now the direction of influence. Now let me make this clear. Because there were many that, let's say a Jewish man found a Moabite female or a Canaanite female and, and they started courting and she was attracted to his God the true God, and she gave up her demonic idols and became, we would say today, got saved, became a Christian. But she would say, wow, I, I, this is the true God, this is what I want. And what would happen was that was completely fine because you know, she's doing the right thing and she's leaving this, these wicked practices and not influencing her husband negatively, and vice versa. The same thing can happen. Remember, Ruth, the book of Ruth, she was a Moabitess. She was a, a pagan. And Rahab was from Jericho. She was a Canaanite woman. Both of these ladies left their gods. They left their false religion, became followers of God, the true God, and then ended up in the bloodline of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Talk about redemption. That's why we can't look at this eisegetically. And you get these weird people who will tell you, see, the Bible teaches the fear of foreigners. Why don't you read the context? Why don't you read, do a little research and you'll find what the truth is. And that's our job as Christians, to be able to answer these questions. Hopefully not non-confrontational in a way that's a, a te in a teaching fashion. Now today, we also look at the principle uh, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, of being unequally yoked. Right? So if a believer is dating an unbeliever, you know, and, and this happens. Listen, a lot of really nice things happen during the courting process, okay? I, I've watched this for decades. And then when the, when the, after the, the wedding, things change. I don't want you going to church anymore. Well, why not? You didn't have a problem while we were dating. How many times have I heard these conversations? Oh, everything was fine while we were dating and he changed or she changed. So God says, listen, he doesn't want your fire for him to be put out by getting, you know, and there's something to pray about who you marry. Because, listen, I've been married, I've known my wife for 25 years, I've been married 20 years. And you know what, we're, we're, we're best friends. And that's what marriage should be about. You have a partnership. There's a vision for your marriage, okay? Marriage isn't just something you're attracted to somebody, you know, I'm lonely, 
That's not the answer. That's not the reason to get married. You have to share. Well, listen, one of the, huge, the biggest bonds is that you're both on the same sheet of music when it comes to um, spirituality. Now, check this out, too, and I've heard this over the years. You've got one spouse who's of one faith, one spouse of another faith. Let's say it's not even Christianity. And then they have kids. And then they decide, well, how are we going to raise our kids? Well, my grandmother, you know, she's going to pass soon, so why don't we start with this, and then we'll move to yours. You know what I don't hear when I hear these discussions? What's the truth? What's reality? Which faith is actually the one that gets you close to God? Which is the one that saves you? I don't hear that discussion a lot. I hear it almost becomes a political discussion between both spouses, and they're negotiating how they're going to raise their kids. So it's, it's, it's very, very important because ultimately, I know for me, I want, I want my kid to go to heaven. I want him to know the truth. I want him to have a relationship with the Lord as he gets older. So there's a lot packed into this. Verse 2, we see that the leaders were setting a bad example. Again, they married uh, outside. They married the pagans. You know, didn't care that their faith got diluted. Maybe it was done for political alliances. That, that happens sometimes. Maybe it was done for some like sexual reason. I mean, there's, listen, <laughs> we see it today. Of course we see it today. Malachi 2, I'm not going to read it, but that prophet explains it more and says that some of the men actually divorced their Jewish wives and put them out to take on these um, pagan people. Now you can imagine the mess that that caused and the heartbreak. He also says that the concern was that their holy seed was intermingled. In other words, the way they were going Unfortunately, the children of Israel at this snapshot in time, sometimes they did really well, and sometimes they didn't. And in this snapshot of time, they were being influenced so negatively that the concern was that the Holy Seed would, you know, were the Messiah, the path to Messiah, right? A few hundred years from this point, Jesus Christ comes, that they would botch it so much that there wouldn't be a situation where the Messiah would come. So there was a lot of concerns. And again, Dynamic influence. I know you can walk out of here today and say, gee, I know that what he said, maybe even if you're a new believer, you don't understand all the ins and outs, the nuts and bolts, but you understand as you go through life from this point, influence. Am I influencing those, those for positive or am I letting myself be influenced for negative? I had a young adult come to me, and I'll be very vague, and the person said to me, I can't hang with that group of friends, and I can't go to those places because I'm not strong enough. And you know what? I respect that. I respect that. You know your limitations. You know, know what you can do and what you can't do. Me, at this point in my life, no one's going to get me off my faith. I, I would jump into a, a pack of crazies and witness to them and see what happens. I'm just very adventurous like that. Um, so, but that's where I am. In my first few years, five, ten years, I don't think I could do something like that. You've got to know your limitations. Verse 3, we continue. So, so when I heard this, this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my beard and my head and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me. He's now becoming attractive to the others that are disenfranchised. Because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. So two out of six, the lamentation of Ezra. He plucks his beard. He's incredulous. He's apoplectic. He's in disbelief. He's like, what is going on here? What is going on? What did I walk into? Right? Well, 
we saw similar responses from Nehemiah and other, other godly leaders. Listen, when God calls us to do something, it's not always going to be fun. He may call you for a special time. He may use you, but it may be a rough road. Okay? Well, number one, uh, Ezra sees, he knows, and he, you know, he's, he's in touch with God, Ezra. He's a God-fearing man. He, he understands the situation. One of the things he knows is, if this continues, I know where this is going to get us, right back into captivity. It took so long for God to, you know, for, the, for repentance to happen among the people, for God to restore, send them back to Jerusalem, build a temple, and Ezra's sitting there thinking, if this goes, this is bad. This is really bad. And when you're a Christian, when you, when you follow the Lord, sometimes you get a word from the Lord. You get wisdom. And you don't even know where, well, you know where it came from, the Holy Spirit. But you know it didn't come from you. And Ezra understands. I wonder, too, that maybe Ezra had a little bit of a different idea of what ministry would be like. And sometimes, especially when we're young, you know, we, go in, we come into ministry and we don't realize that sometimes we get resistance from God's own people. And that's a sad thing. We can see that in the church. I remember as a young pastor in my 30s when our last pastor left for really bad reasons and I took over, I found that there were a lot of opportunists in the church. Thankfully, many of those people left. Some of them I helped leave, but just helped a little bit. But, you know, now it's, we have a beautiful fellowship. But it's amazing how people will come into a church, look to cause division, look to see a weakness, a lack of leadership, and try to capitalize on that. You know? And Ezra's coming into ministry, and he's thinking, he's probably thinking, I can't believe these people. Like, this, is the, this is the priest, this is the leadership. I, I don't get it. So, verse 4, Ezra draws, a, Ezra draws a following. Like-minded people start to come towards him. There's what's called a, a paradigm shift. You know? And, and there, there are some today that are just naturally followers. They're very gentle, they're frail, and they're, they naturally follow, they have to follow somebody. So probably a lot of the Israelites were thinking, man, this is wrong, but this is all the leadership we have. And then Ezra comes along and says, wow, there's something different about him. So you see this paradigm shift where they start to leave the corrupt leaders and they start to move towards Ezra. We have to ask ourselves even today, who do we look up to? Who do we follow? You know, even think about somebody who's like a, a TV personality or an actor. Do you really know anything about that person? Do you really know what they believe, what they follow? You know, maybe if they met you and you said, oh, it's nice to meet you. I'm a born-again believer. They might look at you like you're a weirdo and reject you. You know, who do we follow? Are they like-minded? You see what I'm saying? Is it somebody that we should follow? Or is it somebody that we probably realize it's time to cut the ties? Verse 5, it continues. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers, to this day we have been very guilty, and for the iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as to this day. This is retrospective. He's looking back on their history and saying, look at all the stuff, you know. You know, it's funny, today there's some that just, whatever happens, or there's an argument, or 
a, a failing relationship. They're just always looking to blame somebody else. Ezra said, you know what? We failed you, Lord. We, we, I, at least I know why we were in this position. So this is a really neat retrospective look at life. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So three out of six is God's faithfulness. What does Ezra do? Here's a man of, of, of passion. He's a man of passion and also compassion. He had both. He tears his clothes, which is a sign of grief. He falls on his knees and spreads his hands out towards God, a sign of brokenness. He couldn't look up towards God, a sign of humility. Something that's a little lacking in our culture, humility. He, check this out, was righteous, and he's speaking as if he did these things. This is very unusual, highly unusual, especially today. He could have said, you know what, God? I was in Persia, and I would, you know I was praying and fasting, and these people, man, they're a mess, so I'm going to separate myself. You know, Moses did the same thing that Ezra did. He put himself with the people, you know? He, he, you know, Moses expressed his frustration with the people, but he did love them when push came to shove. And Ezra did too. He loved his sheep. And he took responsibility for them. You know, this is a, a prefigurement or a type of Jesus Christ. For those of you that are new to the scripture, Jesus, of course, he's eternal God. He was, he was in heaven at this point, but he had not come down to earth. That was the first century. This is some... 500 years prior to that happening, all right? Fully God, fully man. That was going to happen in the future. But I think what's amazing is that Ezra, and we call these types or prefigurements, Ezra behaves much like the coming Christ would behave. Now, of course, he's nowhere near as far as righteous as Jesus Christ, but he, you can see these images, these glimpses of men and women who, who did these amazing things and then jesus christ came and everything made sense and what did jesus christ do he did the same thing jesus christ lived he was a man he had the same central nervous system as we did when he got beat and whipped and nailed to the cross he felt every bit of that pain at any moment he could have stopped the reason why he did not was because he said to the father i'll bear their sins they're doomed folks we're doomed without a savior None of us can knock on the door and say, you know, just let me in. I'm, I'm a good person. I didn't kill anybody. If that's your argument and you don't know the Lord, you better do some research because it's not going to fly. What Jesus said was, I will bear the sins of humanity and I will take their punishment. And that's what he did. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? When God, when the Father looked at Christ, he saw the sins. We, you couldn't see it probably in the first century because it's a spiritual thing, but they were dumped on him. And he died, and he was buried, and he rose again in fulfillment of the scripture. That's the gospel message. And when we believe on what Jesus did, our sins, we don't look so bad in front of God anymore because we took on Christ's character. There's this switching of identities. Amazing. That's the gospel. So you see glimpses of it in the Old Testament, and then in the first century, bam, it's, it's there. It's, it's understandable. 
Warren Wiersbe says this. I love him. He's one of the old-time preachers. He says, people don't know how to be ashamed at sin anymore. They don't know how to blush. He said, when a nation turns sin into entertainment and laughs at what it ought to make us weep, we're in desperate need of revival. And I think we're there. I was talking to somebody this morning about some of the old shows, some of the cartoons and some of the old sitcoms. And man, a lot of stuff on TV today is just garbage. It's garbage. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's not good. But it, it's, it's making entertainment out of sin. So Ezra speaks of God's faithfulness in that in as bad as Israel sinned, and put itself, put herself into shame and bondage, God still showed them mercy. He still gave them a way out if they were willing to take it. He never completely shut the door to his sinning people. He never shut the door to repentance and a second chance. And I just want to encourage you this morning, if that's you, you know, and, and some people come to church out of desperation. And some people come to church because they want to feel good, but they just, they look at the people standing and praising and they don't realize that we're all sinners. And they, they, they're looking for something and they think that I'm not going to go forward or I'm not going to commit because I've just made a mess of my life. I've sinned too much. I want to encourage you. If you're even a prodigal, if you've walked away for a time, the Lord never shuts the door on you. The Israelites were his prodigal children, for heaven's sake, weren't they? And how many times did he give them a chance to repent from the heart? That's our God. That's the God we serve. Verse 10, he continues, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the people of the land and their abominations. I think he uses this term three times in what we're going to read this morning. The abominations, their evil practices, their sinful, wicked practices, which have filled it from one, one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore, do not give your daughters as wives to, to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you are God, you our God, have punished us less than our iniquities or our sins deserve and have given us such deliverance as this. Should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people of these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant, as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. For Israel's unfaithfulness. Again, this could have led to something disastrous, for the children of Israel, you know? I, I know that there's been some churches that have been judgmental and they just scrutinize everything you do. I understand that. That's not really a reflection of the Scripture. However, when somebody who loves you warns you about sin and they do it in a loving way, they're saying it for your own good. I mean, I've had mentors in my life that has done that for me. And maybe I didn't like to hear it at the time, but you know what? Now I look back and I really appreciated that God put those people in my life. You know, today you see um, the talk about Europe being post-Christian, America, there's forces. There are evil forces in this country that are trying to push this country away from Judeo-Christian values, make no mistake. It's not something you can see, it's not something tangible, but it's something that you can discern if you're in the Word and you're in prayer. 
And there is a, a, a war for the soul of America. I really believe that strongly. We can either just go along with it, or we can pray. We can know what we believe. We can respond to it. Right? We can give an apologian and a, a courtroom-style defense for those accusations or those false teachings. We could do those things. Things such as the gospel, the deity of Christ, hell, are purposely suppressed and diluted. It's happening as we speak. There are, I call them, and look it up, Marxist forces that have tried to infiltrate the church, try to dilute the teachings of the church so that those who adhere to orthodoxy look like the strange ones. And just to keep pushing the church and politics and the culture into this global kind of idea so that the Antichrist, eventually when he comes, has total control over the planet. This is what we're dealing with. And it's, you know, we have to fight this. And I don't mean take out our guns and start shooting things up. I mean, sometimes you've got to clarify. I mean that we should be in prayer. And we pray for... Uh, I pray on a regular basis for our culture. I pray for the Lord's return. I pray for his righteous rule. You know, we need to be in prayer about these things. Make no mistake. But the people under Ezra admit their sin and rebellion against God. They're introspective. Remember, Ezra starts it. He gathers a following, and they're in agreement with him. You watch the, um, you know, the progression here. I find verse 13 fascinating. He says, You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us deliverance. Major perspective on which side of God we are on. And I, I want to take some time on this because I know there's people here. We are a community church. People come, people go. And on any given Sunday, we'll have those that walk in and don't really know a lot about God. So I want to help with understanding that. When I didn't know Christ, remember, I was in a big denomination, right? Wore a cross around my neck, had no relationship with God. My lifestyle was anything but a follower of God. I was unsaved. My picture of God, now remember, in these days, was that God was harsh. He was an abusive father. He was always looking to find fault with me. Part of it was from the culture. Part of it was, was from my own guilt, my own sinful lifestyle. So I formulated a picture of God. And the only time that I called out to him was when I was in trouble. And I was desperate and my life could be at stake. And then the next day, if he delivered me, which he did, I'm still here, I forgot about him again and had this negative opinion of him. Let me just make sure that this is crystal clear. I was wrong. My view of God was completely false. When I became a Christian, my whole outlook, my spiritual Cadillac, Cadillac, my spiritual, it happens sometimes. My, my spiritual cataracts were removed. Okay, so now I'm saved. I, I study the Word of God. I pray. I get involved in a church. My understanding of God completely changes. 180 degrees, complete opposite. Okay? My picture of God now is that He loves me, He forgives my failings, and He shows me grace. Wow, isn't that amazing? Am I two different people? Yeah, because I became born again. I was born again in the Spirit. Satan had deceived me and kept me in, a, in a, a, a position of spiritual ignorance. And that's what happens. I can't tell you, looking back, how many times God has saved my bacon. On rare occasions, I'll tell my wife some of the things that, that I did even before she met me, and I'm like, can you believe I'm here? I am one person who's extremely appreciative 
of what God did in my life. So I will serve him until my last day. Well, chapter 10, verses, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God. You know, this is amazing too. We have this silly thing in our society, tough men don't cry. Tough men don't show their feelings, right? It's ridiculous. These people, these men were men's men. They were warriors. They lived off the land. They, if God said, jump off that cliff and, and get back up and climb to the top, they would do it. Ezra, Nehemiah, and, and the women too, they were tough people. But they knew when to not put up the walls. They knew when to release their, they knew when they had these cathartic experiences because they, not only did they intellectually know God, they knew him in, in their heart, and they knew him in their spirit. And sometimes it was the perfect storm. All the three of those things came together, and they just, they just were feeling it, man. And I'm not going to say that every single day I feel like these fuzzy feelings, but there's just times where God's spirit washes over you, and it's powerful. And you, you just you lose your faculties sometimes, you know what I'm saying? You lose it. You know what I'm talking about. And sometimes in the deepest, darkest times are those times where we, we just let go. We just take the walls down. So I just love reading about this, you know. He's weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large congregation of men, women, and children assembled to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. So five out of six is Israel laments. The people wept bitterly for sinning against God. You know, and um, yeah, it's important. It really is. It's funny because Pastor Paul and I, we, I don't check with him. I don't give him my notes and he doesn't give me his song list. It's worship list. And here, I'm going to quote a Psalm, 5117, which were part of the words that he... It's just amazing how that works. Out of hundreds of worship songs he could have chosen from, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You know, what is our reaction to God? We could do stuff for Him. I'll go to church for you, God. Look, I'm putting money in the plate. You know what I'm saying? We can be silly sometimes with what we think he wants. And back then they did the same thing. They had their sacrifices. And you know, in some of the prophets, God said, you know, I'm sick of the sacrifices because your heart's not for me. I could see past what you're doing. God wants our heart. So a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, these you will not despise. God will never despise when our heart is completely broken before him. Amen? Jesus said that those that, that fall on Christ will be broken, but whom the Son falls will be ground to powder. And he's based, Jesus is saying to me, you can come to me one or two ways. You can come to me willingly, and you may be broken. Bones heal, bones heal stronger. When all the minerals get in there, it becomes tougher. But there will be a time where people keep rejecting Christ, rejecting him, rejecting him, and there will be no, there'll be no remedy. Okay, so brokenness is a good thing versus lip service versus shallow Christianity. There's a lot of that out there. Verse one, it says he's, they speak of praying and confessing, being honest before God. 
there's a, a delusion in today's culture, and I think a lot of it is fed by electronics and social media because God designed us to be interactive. You know, and, and even sometimes people will, and I'm not cutting it, you know, a lot of churches have live streaming and they'll, church to them is watching a preacher on TV. No, no, no. Hebrew says don't forsake the assembling of the brother, the brothers and sisters. There's a human component when we get together and we see each other and we haven't seen each other for a while. There's joy, there's laughter, there's hugs, there's tears sometimes. Will you pray for me? I need to tell you something. I have a burden on my heart. You see what I'm saying? So we have this, this bond that's very important. And when we get so caught up in electronics, we become narcissistic. It's just, I've read psychologists, psychiatrists speak about this because now it's just us. It's just us in our own kingdom and our own fiefdom and our only contact with anybody is typing a like on their post or a little comment. So the personal contact is huge. It's big. It's big. And we, when we get together, and we pray together, and we confess to God together, there's, there's a component you can't get by being isolated. Right? I mean, today the attitude is, well, if I have an argument with somebody, I'm just right. I'm right. I'm always right. And it's, it's, a, it's a delusion. It's a narcissistic delusion. And it's natural when we start to get it, when we start being more removed from fellowship. Verse 3. There's a big chunk here, and I'm going to... I'm going to make sense of it. It says, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the counsel of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise for this matter is your responsibility. We also will be with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoachan, the son of Eliashab. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water. And he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. Sin makes life messy. And then when you try to figure out how to fix it, it gets dumped on usually an innocent third party or a loved one. And Ezra is taking this personal. He's like, well, what do we do? I mean, there were guys who literally kicked their wives and their kids out to the curb. And then they married these pagans. And, and then, the, well, what do you do? And would the first wife even want him back if he separates himself? It just is a very messy situation. There's no great answer to this. Uh, I'll continue with that. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem, that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the congregation of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month and the twelfth, twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. And all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, we must do. There are many people. It is the season for heavy rain. We are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. 
Please let the leaders of our entire congregation stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziel, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. A lot of information here, but remember, this is written 2,500 years ago. There's uh, a recording of it. Um, there's minutes. It's almost like a board meeting. Uh, there's a, uh, committees that have to be appointed. Uh, they have to take a roll call of who's there. So to us, honestly, in 2016, I'm not going to go through all this point by point because there's no need to. But understand, God's word is not just for us. It was for people back then too. And this information needed to be in here. So six out of six, the covenant or the agreement is instituted and the oath instituted. Now, let me just say this again. In the event where in, in, a, in a Ruth situation or a Rahab situation, person's like, listen, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with Yahweh. I'm with the, the true God. It's not an issue. Those families are not affected at all. As a matter of fact, it was a very small percentage. But remember, some of the families gave their daughters to, to pagan families. Uh, and that was really sad because the daughters, and it was a patriarchal culture, so their little flame for God, uh, their parents did terrible things. You know, we've got to bring th these girls back. They don't want to be in that situation. We've got to uh, divest of these ungodly relationships. It was, it was heartbreaking. And that's what sin does. And today, sin does the same thing. You know, if you have somebody who has a sinful lifestyle in your family, and they're constantly, when they're hitting the ground, whether through incarceration or whatever the case may be, or extreme situations, it's usually the loved ones who have to pick up the pieces. And, and it puts them really in an impossible situation. And sometimes the person who's in sin, they'll say, well, you don't love me. And then they'll use mind control and manipulation to manipulate the loved ones to continue to let them feed their lifestyle. It's a head game. Don't fall for it. If you're the loved one, stand, stand strong. If you're standing on the scripture, stand strong. When I counsel families, I don't play games. Person's manipulating, I let them know, you're, mani you're manipulating your family, and it's not right, okay? And this is what sin does. It deceives, it, 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 it clouds a person's judgment. And, and again, the loved ones are the ones who take the hit. On the bright side, when we read the names and the roll call and the roster, there was a little over 100 offenders, which was a very small percentage, but it took the lion's share of attention. So if you really get down to it, if you got the 50,000 that came back in the first wave and you got the 1,500 in the second wave and you take 100, that's less than a half a percent. But what happens? Another thing that sin does, it occludes constructive ideas. It occludes something we could do, be doing better with our time. Now we have to deal with this sinful situation. And you know, you see it. There's a, a saying in the news media, if it bleeds, it leads, right? If it's some, somebody's bleeding and somebody got beat or shot, that's what's on the news. Because sadly enough, as Americans, as consumers, and I'm not saying we because I don't like it, but ratings go up when it's a disaster and it's a catastrophe. 
The good things that happen every day in society you rarely see because it's not interesting, it's not newsworthy. If it bleeds, it leads. Same thing back here. You know, you can, a church could be doing a hundred wonderful things. There's one situation where there's a gossip within a circle, it spreads like wildfire. And hopefully that doesn't happen here. Hopefully we, we reject the bad news and we move towards things that we see that are, are, are good. You know, we see the, the good in and those around us, the good in Christians, and stop always trying to pick apart by fault. But this is what's going on here. Small percentage, less than a half a percent, but this was a big problem. And I have to tell you, even in the church, when I've had to deal with a problem situation, it saps my time, my energy. I could be doing 50 other great things, but I have to deal with a problem that just blew up in the church so it doesn't spread. It's really a good point to look at. Verses 18 through 44, I won't go through them. Uh, basically, these are the different groups, the roster of the groups that separated themselves, the priests, the Levites, and anyone else not in those two categories. So this is where we leave it. Dy- dynamic influence. At any given time, we're me- being moved towards the Lord or we're being moved away from the Lord. Right now, hopefully, we're all being moved towards the Lord. <laughs> you know, we're focused, we're listening to the word, we're listening to the applications, and we're saying, you know what, I, I want to apply this when I get out of here the rest of my week. You know, I don't just want to do Sunday church. So Rubabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah tried very hard to push the people or to influence them towards the Lord. But the culture was like a riptide. It was pulling the people away from the Lord. You have these forces that are competing with each other. And again, at any given time, we will be moving towards or away. Very rarely is it static. Consider Ezra. Check this out. Ezra, this is a really important point I want to make, had better behavior coming from pagan Persia than a lot of his fellow Jews in an ideal situation in Jerusalem with the temple. Think about that for a moment. Because I hear sometimes believers complain. Well, gee, if I just had more money. Well, if I just moved out of New Jersey, listen, we all want to move out of New Jersey, okay? I get it, <laughs> but, but it's not always... Actually, I'd like to move, but I, gotta, I have to talk all of you to come with me to where we're going so we can just set foot somewhere else. The taxes are too high here. Okay, I'm way off the topic. <laughs> so, but the point is... And gas just went up, man. <laughs> so, the point is that It isn't our environment or circumstances or the people around us that causes victory or not. It's the internal spiritual compass that we use to guide us, right? There are Christians right now. We had Christians um, that right now they're in Assyria, Turkey, ISIS territory. We had missionaries that were in Afghanistan. We had missionaries in Guatemala. And the one guy got beat up really bad for, I mean, bad, where he lost his hearing. He got kicked in the head and in the ear. Um, They're in the lion's den. And you know what? They're strong. Otherwise, they'd get off the the missions field. I was going to say the battlefield. They're synonymous. So it isn't about our circumstances. You know, we can't be complaining and whining about our circumstances all the time. It has to come from within. You know, that's where we get the victory from. Lastly, I titled this book, because we're done with Ezra after this. Um, Can't wait to jump into the parables. Can't wait till next week. But um, titled the book, Breaking New Ground with God. Again, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah all came out of their comfort zones to break new ground with God. And 
Did the thought ever cross their mind? I should have stayed in Persia. Life was easier back there. Might have. I'll find out. I'll ask them when they get to heaven. But they still did what the Lord called them to do. They, they still broke new ground. They still were obedient to the Lord's call. So if you've been in this book the whole time, God may be calling you to break new ground. I just had a brother, I had a few people, by the way, over the last few months. A brother recently came to me and said, I want to start something. I want to step up to the plate. He goes, I feel unqualified, but after these messages, he goes, I really feel the Lord's ask, calling me to do it. And I said, well, you're in the right place. I feel unqualified, but I want to respond to the Lord's call. I just want to pray for everyone here that we make that connection with God, that we step up to the plate, that we're obedient to his call, and that we find the joy in serving him. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.